Well, good morning, Northside Church, and I greet you in the name of our spendthrift, prodigal God. So good to see you in worship today, along with those who've joined us online. I really appreciated Elizabeth's witness this morning and Elle's assistance. You have much more poise than I would in that situation, and y'all have got a story you can tell for decades to come. If I'm at her rehearsal dinner, I expect to hear that, okay? But today we are talking about generosity and what it looks like to be a generous people blessed by God. Uh, Bishop Robert Schnees in 2007 published a book that was entitled Five Practices of Fruitful Congregations. And he identified a handful of principles that growing congregations honor. They include extravagant generosity, which we're going to be talking about in a few moments, risk-taking mission and service, intentional faith development, passionate worship, and radical hospitality. In our stewardship emphasis this fall, we are talking about what does it mean to be an extravagant, generous people. Schnees in his book wrote, Growing in the grace of giving is part of the Christian journey of faith, and giving is always extravagant, life-changing, and joyful. Today we're considering what does it mean to be defined by generosity. And our scripture lesson comes from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Amen. James Carville served as the campaign manager for Bill Clinton's first presidential run in 1992. People either love Carville or they love not to love Carville, But even his enemies will readily admit he was a political genius. He posted a sign in the Little Rock campaign headquarters that had three simple words. And I'm going to massage them just a little bit since we're in an intergenerational setting. It said, the economy, silly. And it became the mantra for the presidential campaign and became a part of political legend as well. To quote Yogi Berra, it's deja vu all over again because the economy is on everyone's mind. It is the lead story on radio, TV, internet. It's a source and topic of conversation around the coffee pot, the water cooler, in conference rooms, on Zoom calls around our dining room tables. Talk about the fluctuating stock market, the Fed increasing interest rates, inflation that is going through the roof, retirement accounts that seem to be constantly declining, and we're all concerned about the economy. 
And the national financial crisis is also a personal financial crisis. We are all paying more for everything. The economy, silly, is on everyone's mind. So guess what time it is in the church calendar? It is stewardship season in local congregations across the United States of America. Lucky me. And this past week, hopefully you received in the mail our stewardship impact report that shows the extraordinary panoply of ministry and mission that Northside's involved in. And included within it is a commitment card for 2023 as we begin making plans for ministry and mission in the upcoming year. It's a challenging time to be standing before you and talking about money. I feel like I'm trying to sell ice cream in Alaska in February in the middle of a blizzard. In fact, I had a layperson approach me and say, the stewardship campaign could not occur at a worse time of the year. And I've reflected on those words. And at the risk of sounding like a wide-eyed optimist, which I'm seldom charged with being, I disagree. I don't think it could happen at a better time of the year. Because when the economy is on everyone's mind, it's a great time to talk about financial faithfulness, and principles for managing the resources that God has placed into our hands. So today I want us to do some financial planning. And I know what your immediate response is, I don't have any finances left to plan. Because there are days it feels like there is more month than there is money, and that we're trying to make our way into a future that is so uncertain. It's a material world. We could all use a little bit more material to work with, so I'm going to play pretend with you for a moment. In your mind, and take a moment to think about this, how much more money do you need to feel secure and happy? I'm not talking about winning the Mega Millions jackpot. I'm just talking about a pay raise, additional income, a percentage, a dollar amount. What would it take to make you feel secure and happy. A similar question was once posed to millionaire John D. Rockefeller. He was asked how much did he really need, and he smiled and said, just a little bit more. That resonates with me, doesn't it, with you? We all want just a little bit more. Of course, the issue is that our wants and our needs tend to expand to the income that we have, and sometimes even beyond that. There was a Bloomberg report issued back in August that estimated 13% of Americans spent more than they made over the past six months. That's about 34 million of our fellow American citizens. And a lot of consumers have underwritten lifestyle choices with low interest and delayed payments. And we've danced, and now the fiddler wants to be paid. And we are facing some cold, hard facts about cold, hard cash. And it's not only an individual, but it's also on a national level. I never make political comments or endorsements from the pulpit. 
But I will say we need leaders on every level of government who practice fiscal responsibility. Since 1929, the national debt has slowly been increasing. We're now approaching $30 trillion. I don't even know what trillion means. Now, a better barometer is what the national debt is in ratio to our gross domestic product. And that ratio fluctuated somewhat in the previous century, but since 2000, it has got increasingly worse. And I want to say again, I'm not making a political endorsement or comment, because since 2000, both the Democrat and the Republican parties have about controlled the presidency an equal number of years, as well as the Congress. And regardless of what political party we support, the party is over. And we need to get serious about fiscal responsibility on a national and an individual level. And it's really a pretty simple equation when you get down to it, spend less than you make. The moment you start spending more than you make, problems ensue. And the true irony of all of this is we have bought into a myth. It is a national myth that gets perpetuated in our own lives that money leads to increased security and happiness. When what we discover over and again, both as we look at ourselves and as we look at others, is that simply not the case. There have been a number of studies, sociological, not religious, sociological studies that show there's no correlation between money and happiness. One person looked at a host of longitudinal studies, and he said this, if you follow a single person over time as they move from lower income to higher income, you will find no increase in their happiness. No increase. It might make us feel more comfortable, but not happier, because you see, we're trying to make money, finances, do something they were never designed to do. They are simply a means to an end. They are a tool that God has given us to care for ourselves and to care for others. It's a tool, and I want to emphasize that. Do you know of any carpenter that gets sentimental about his hammer? Do you know an accountant who's unduly affectionate about her calculator? IT professionals that kiss their computers goodnight? Teachers that think the next curriculum plan is going to fulfill their career, money is a tool, a means to an end, and if we assign it more importance than that, we are going to be disappointed. But it's our constant sinful tendency to confuse the created with the creator, and we end up worshiping the made rather than the maker. It's not a question if we have a little money. It's a question is, does a little money have us? Because you've heard me say repeatedly, money makes a wonderful servant and it makes a terrible master. There's a story told about an extremely wealthy man that as he was about to die, put in his will that he wanted to be buried in his brand new Lamborghini Veneno Roadster. So after his death, the estate arranged for a backhoe to go out into the cemetery, dig this huge hole, and a crane lifted the $4.5 million luxury car down into the hole, and then the backhoe began to shovel dirt atop it. And there were two gravediggers watching this whole production. And one of them nudged the other and said, 
That's the way to live. That's the way to live. The man was dead. Come on, people, work with me just a little bit here. There are moments when we all fall into the trap of making money more than it is. We brought nothing into this world. We're not going to take anything out. What we get to be is stewards, receiving what God has placed in our hand and treating what is not our own as if it were our own, faithfully for a lifetime, and then returning it back to God with interest. The title of today's sermon is Defined by Generosity. I got to hear Elizabeth at the 8.30 service, and it struck me that we both took the same pathway with that title. Because when I originally created the title, I was thinking about ourselves as Christian stewards. But in writing the sermon, it hit me, God is defined by generosity. We do serve a spendthrift, prodigal God who gives lavishly. The Bible's a story of a giving God. In the Old Testament, God speaks creation into being. He forms covenant with the patriarchs and the matriarchs, delivers the Israelites out of Egypt, gives Moses the law, leads them into the promised land, brings the kingdom together for David, allows Solomon to build a temple, inspires the prophets to proclaim his word. The story of giving continues in the New Testament as the word becomes flesh, God comes among us, that Jesus lived and died and rose again to give us the gift of salvation. The Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost, and we in turn as the body of Christ have the chance to share that gift with others. In his first letter to his protege, Timothy, Paul wrote, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in their wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And financial faithfulness is a vital aspect and marker of Christian discipleship. I think in our minds, and I certainly think in mine, I typically think of greed and generosity as a spectrum. That at one end is greed, which is closed-fisted, ungiving, selfish, centered on self. At the other end is generosity, which is open-handed. It's giving. It's selfless. It's focused on God and others. And if that is a spectrum, greed to generosity, we all would identify ourselves somewhere between the two. Which in some ways is a comforting thought because if it's a spectrum, you can always find people who are more greedy, who are less generous than we are. But it hit me as I was writing the sermon, what if it's not a spectrum? What if it's a binary choice? What if every time we face an opportunity to give, it is either no or yes, greed or generosity, a binary choice that defines our life? Which would we pick? I know the people here, we would all choose generosity. Because if God is defined by generosity, that's how we want our lives to be defined as well. So extending that thought of greed and generosity as a binary choice, it hit me. There are two stories in Jesus' ministry that epitomize those choices. And they're very familiar stories. 
The first is a story about the rich young ruler. And we're actually going to get a little bit more in depth into that story in a couple of weeks. But we've heard about the rich young ruler. Now, that's actually a compilation of the gospel accounts. One of us tells us that he was young. One of us tells us he was a ruler. Everybody agrees he was rich. And one day he comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus almost gives a perfunctory answer to begin with and says, you know the commandments. And he lists off some of them. And the young man says, Lord, I've followed those commandments since I was young. And there's a telling detail in one of the gospel accounts where it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. He said, one thing you lack. Stop there for a moment. Imagine having a private audience with Jesus. And Jesus said to you and to me, there's one thing you lack to receive eternal life. Wouldn't you be extremely interested in what that was and to, be res and to respond to that? Well, in the rich young ruler's case, the one thing he lacked, the one thing that was holding him back was his wealth. And Jesus said to him, go sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man's face fell, and he turned and walked away because he was extremely wealthy. He chose greed over generosity. And now this is Bill Birch adding his own spin to the story. But I think you can make a really strong case if the man had said yes. We would know his name just as well as we know Peter, James, and John. That he would have been a part of that inner circle that followed Jesus to the cross and beyond. That there would be churches across America and the world named in his honor. But instead, he's nameless and faceless, just the rich young ruler. The second account is one we visited this past summer, and it's the story of Zacchaeus. And if you're here that Sunday, I didn't sing it, but I did reference a song I learned in Sunday school that Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector of Jericho, a Jewish man who worked and collaborated with the Roman government. And the Roman tax system was sinfully simple. A person was either appointed or bought the opportunity to collect taxes in a region. The Romans told them what they expected. Anything they got above that amount was theirs to keep. Can you see how such a system would lend itself to extortion and dishonesty? And tax collectors were despised by the Jewish people. In fact, Jesus oftentimes talks about sinners and tax collectors. Well, in Jesus' ministry, you hear that phrase, not Jesus himself. But Zacchaeus somehow, someway, wanted to see the Lord. And so he risks a hostile crowd and finally climbs up in a tree to see Jesus pass by. And there's that horrible, wonderful moment of discovery when Jesus looks up and spies this prestigious man perched like a turkey in the limbs of a tree. And Jesus says, come down. I'm going to your house. And so Zacchaeus entertains Jesus and his followers with a dinner at his home. And you can imagine what the religious leaders and others thought about this. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But in the presence of Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart was transformed. 
And he said to the Lord in the hearing of others, Look, Lord, here now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will give them back four times the amount. And Jesus said to Zacchaeus and to everyone present, Today salvation has come to this house because I've come to seek and save that which is lost. One chose greed. The other chose generosity. One we simply call the rich young ruler. 2,000 years later, we still remember Zacchaeus' name. It's the divine economy, silly. It's the divine economy, saints. God is defined by generosity. And we are defined by generosity in turn. We're called to give lavishly, extravagantly, serving as stewards of the riches that God has placed into our hands. There are Capital One credit card commercials we've all seen over the years that ask the question, what's in your wallet? The Holy Spirit asked the question today, what are we doing with what's in our wallet? Let us pray. Gracious God, abide with your people. Inspire us to generosity. Following your example, teach us how to give extraordinarily, lavishly, joyfully, graciously, like children in imitation of their parent. In Christ's name we make our prayer. Amen.